Welcome back to another episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm your host, Jack Llewellyn. Thank you for joining me today. All right, today we're going to do three different things. First, we're going to talk about um, a conference that I was able to go to this past week that I think you'll find interesting. Second, we're going to talk a little bit about last week's episode and in particular some response that I got to last week's episode. And then number three, we're going to talk about two specific areas of testimony and uh, DEA6 and uh, reports from Godoy and Lopez in particular, but specific areas where we can go back and we have contemporaneous evidence to judge them. Okay, so we'll do those three things, and I think they all fit together, and you'll see how um, as we we progress. So first of all, last week, I had the honor of attending the International Summit on Mexican Cartels and Gangs in San Antonio. Fascinating, fascinating time, uh, attended by about 180 law enforcement uh, officers from around the country, interesting folks, um, some really, really big guys that I would not want to be on the wrong side of a disagreement with, but really good, fascinating stuff. But really what was exciting for me is the keynote speaker was Enrique Kiki Camarena Jr. And I was able to spend um, some good time talking to uh, Mr. Camarena, who's now a judge in San Diego, as most of you probably know. Um, talked to him in formal and informal settings, and uh, it, it was it was a real honor, and it was a, a also an honor to listen to his presentation about his memory of his dad, his memory of kind of those terrible events in February of, of 1985, and then the things he's done to try to uh, continue his father's legacy. Uh, it was profound and it was emotional uh, and something, again, that I'm extremely honored to have, uh, have been able to witness firsthand and up close. Uh, there was somebody who went in between us uh, and in kind of these keynote presentations. And then an hour later, I gave a presentation on the Camarena case and things I've been doing in my investigation and things. Um, and I must admit, uh, giving that presentation with Judge Camarena sitting right there um, was... Uh, profoundly um, meaningful and also quite intimidating. Um, I will say that it, uh, Judge Camarena shook my hand and spoke to me afterwards, so I must have done okay. Um, but again, it was, it, was, um, it was great to talk to him. Uh, his presentation included some nuances that were um, really important to me in the way that he and perhaps some others in his family looked at certain events. Um, and again, I think my presentation was well-received both by him and by others. 
was able to have some very interesting conversations with some uh, some law enforcement officials uh, with respect to the case and might have had an opportunity to pull on a couple of, of strings or threads that have been hanging out there that we'd like to find more information on. Um, and I'll keep you posted if we get anywhere on them. But, uh, you know, again, part of my hope is, as you all know, if you've, if you've listened to any of these uh, podcasts, there are still unanswered questions. And in fact, my presentation ended up with how in the world is it that we're 37 years down the road and we still have many open questions. One of the things that, that I still want to do is to find um, information on a couple of these open questions, uh, open issues. Again, little threads that may not in and of themselves mean a lot, but the tie in. And the more people I can talk to, the more people I can reach, the better a chance that, you know, that... Um, that we might find something on those particular issues and then see where it goes. So again, um, a huge thank you to judge Camarena, uh, for his hospitality, his, um, his welcoming of my presentation and my thoughts. And also, um, a huge presentation to Robert Almonte and Steve Duncan and their wives for being tremendous hosts um, and a, a really a great, great uh, conference. You know, it's limited normally to law enforcement, so I was, again, very honored to have been there. All right. Last week, or last, our last episode, I discussed um, a conversation that I had had with Agent Boreas, where... Um, through an intermediary, John Massaria, um, Agent Breas had reached out to me. We'd had a conversation last a little bit over an hour. And that Agent Breas had said, you know, hey, here are four or five or six areas that I think you should look into. And then I went through them with you, right? We walked through each one. And I told you kind of what I'd done and, and why I thought it was important. Um, and then I got a response this week from Mr. Masseria and it came in the form of, of three emails and I want you to be aware of what was said. So the first email back said, and I'm quoting, Hector is very disappointed in your lack of truth in your podcast. Truth can never be subverted. And then it has a link to an episode four of the Rogue Narc, which again is that documentary that um, Mr. Masseria had filmed that uh, predates the last Narc. And the, the clip from this episode includes um, Terry Reed talking about um, what his involvement and, and things, and and um, you know we talked about Terry Reed, right? I told you I went and I looked at it, um, and I went back and looked this week, and I'll talk about that in a second. But um, quite frankly, there was nothing in that clip that changed my mind at all. And then we've got a, a second email from Mr. Masseria saying, again, quote, 
You failed at seeking the truth. You looked at nothing. Hector spent an hour with you asking you to look at, and you failed. Close quote. Well, I think the the fact that there was the episode at all shows that I did look into things, right? I told you I went back and I pulled things from the court records to verify. I told you that I read um, Agent Reed's book or Mr. Reed's book. Um, you know, so, all right, if you don't think I did, great. Um, but uh, I, I kind of um, disagree. And then the last one, again, I'm going to read it just directly to you, Okay. Okay, it's a goal to dismiss Terry Reed, and the DA6 is proving what Hector said. He said he would produce them for you. Makes me wonder why you said you want the truth. Truth is you risk nothing by covering up, and everyone else risks everything by telling the truth. I see where you and your friends stand, and it's obvious. So, a couple of things, and I'm going to be very, very direct here, all right? Number one, the fact that I don't agree with you doesn't mean, number one, or doesn't mean that I didn't look, doesn't mean I didn't do research, it doesn't mean that I have a closed mind, it doesn't mean I'm stupid, it doesn't mean I'm gullible, it doesn't mean I'm controlled by others, it means I disagree. And everybody has the right to disagree. And damn it, I think, based on the work that I've done, I have an absolute right to disagree. Doesn't mean necessarily that I'm right and somebody else is wrong. But I can look at the evidence, the totality of the evidence as I currently see it, and come to conclusions. I can also change those conclusions. But to say that I didn't do research that I didn't look, that I didn't read, is wrong, and it's a terrible rhetorical device. Right? Don't engage in a discussion. Simply say, oh, well, you didn't pay attention. We see that in politics all the time. We see that in the media all the time. That's not how it's supposed to work. And I've said from day one, I've said to everybody, I've said it on this podcast, I've said it in, in my book, I said it to Judge Camarena. If I find evidence that makes me change my mind, I will change my mind. I will tell everybody that my opinion has changed. I will tell everybody I was wrong. You know, I was on a podcast last night, and... Uh, there will be a link to it, I think, in my newsletter coming out um, later on. But I was in a podcast last night, and I mentioned the fact that there was a guy who came out in the press this week who has a new theory on who D.B. Cooper was and may have some pretty good evidence to support it. But what's, what was fascinating to me is this is a guy who, um, to people who follow that case, uh, and I have a personal connection to that case, um, and so I kind of follow up, but not intensely. But this particular guy for about 10 years had been jumping up and down and, and making a, a pretty strong case that D.B. Cooper was one particular person. Well, it ended up being shown that it couldn't have been this person. 
And this researcher, to his credit, said, yep, I was wrong. I'm going to go back to the beginning and look and see where I missed and see if there's new materials, new documents, new evidence. And lo and behold, he came up with another suspect. Now, I don't know if he's right or wrong, but I loved the academic honesty, right? And I told you last week that Hector was so convinced that Agent Kirkendall had testified as a defense witness that I went back. We went to the court records and pulled the records and looked, and I see nothing that indicates that. Nothing at all. It's not on the witnesses list. It's not on the reports from the court reporter. Art Rodriguez is there. Agent Kirkendall testifying for the government and being cross-examined is there, but nothing is there. So don't tell me I didn't look. Don't tell me my mind is shut off. All right, so that's number one. Number two, I want to make this really clear. I am not doing this for anyone's approval or validation, and certainly not for Hector Boreas's validation or approval. Quite frankly, right now, the only person whose validation or approval really means much to me is my daughter. And as long as I feel like I'm being academically honest, I'm being truthful, I'm being transparent, then I don't really care about anyone else's validation. And if I did, I got it this week at the conference I was at. So quite frankly, I would love to have more conversations with Agent Breas. If it's a dialogue, if it's a conversation, but I'm not doing it and never will do it to get his approval or validation. And just so you know, remember we last week we talked about Terry Reed and, and his book and the fact that he says that he dealt with Felix Rodriguez in Guadalajara. There's two important notes to that. Number one, the book has nothing, nothing at all to do with the drug traffickers or the drug trade. And again, I went back and I looked, and it's very clear in there that he says he didn't meet Felix Rodriguez until late in later in 1985, so after February of 1985. And again, I don't see where that testimony relates at all to the impact of whether or not Felix Rodriguez could have been at Lope de Vega on February 7th and February 8th. Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see that connection at all. And again, that doesn't mean I didn't go back and look. I looked. I read the damn book. I paid money. (laughs) Terry Reed's going to get a residual from me looking at it. And we could go back over everything that I said last week, but I'm not going to do it. You don't think I've looked, Hector? Fine. That's okay. You want to have a dialogue? You want to have a conversation? You know how to reach me. Okay. I'm done. Um, here's the other topic I want to talk about today. So when I sat down and talked to some people this last week and last night in the podcast about this case, You know, one of the things that I mentioned is it's so hard to find new information because the number of people who, uh, you know, were around 
is dwindling. Memories are fading. Documents, are, you know, are harder to come by. Uh, you know, places and where people were aren't there anymore. You know, all of these issues. It's you know, again, we've talked about it. 1985, Mexico, you know, was a different world, right? You know, no social media, no, none of that. And so records are hard to come by. Documents are hard to come by. So how, you know, how do you judge testimony and statements? You know, one of the things that's very clear is Agent Bereas and those who support him believe Godoy and Lopez and to a lesser extent, Ramon Lira, um, but what I wanted to do is to try to figure out a way to go back and look at some of their statements, right? Is is there something concrete we can look at? And, you know, is there anybody at all who watched the last arc who doesn't think Jorge Godoy is just batshit crazy? Doesn't mean that he's wrong about everything, right? So, let's see... This is what I said to myself. Let's see what we can, what we can, you know, put our hands on. What's some solid evidence? And I came up with two things that I think are really, really important. One involves the Las Americas Hotel. And the other involves Manuel Bartlett Diaz. So we're going to start with the Las Americas Hotel. The Las Americas Hotel, as um, I may have already said, Hotel Godoy talks about um, a meeting there. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Lopez also refers to it, but he's outside, so Godoy is the one who talks about the details more. That hotel doesn't exist anymore, right? But long since been torn down. But Here's what's important. We actually have witness statements, affidavits. We have pictures. We have descriptions from which we can talk about facts. Right? We, there are tangible facts, tangible documentary evidence with respect to Las Americas Hotel, and we can compare those to the statements of Godoy and Lopez. So, Godoy testifies, and again, Lopez Romero says he was there, but Godoy's the one who's inside. So, Godoy says he, Fonseca, and 15 of Fonseca's other bodyguards and associates went to the Las Americas Hotel in Guadalajara. He says they traveled in several expensive luxury cars. Okay, And remember, this is all in the transcripts, right? He says that when they got there, they walked into a suite on the ground level that consisted of a living room area with a bar and two bedrooms, and each room had a door to an outside patio and a door connecting the two rooms. Now, 
Listen to this part. In order, well, let me let me say it differently. This suite area had to have been large enough to account for at least twenty nine people. As Godoy testifies, about three military officers, six MFJP officers, four politicians, including. Manuel Bartlett Diaz, who at the time was the uh, interior minister, which was basically the second most powerful position in Mexico, three state prosecutors, four DFS, two state commandants, and seven traffickers, in addition to at least 20 bodyguards, either outside the suite or somewhere on the grounds. So that's about 50 people in total. So what do we know? Again, several luxury cars. We know that people like Manuel Bartlett Diaz, you know, weren't taking cabs. A suite. Large enough for 29 people. Okay, what do we know about the hotel? What what can we Demonstrably, demonstrably prove about the Las Americas Hotel. Number one, it was not a luxury establishment. Not a luxury establishment. It was a run-down hotel, right? It was owned by the traffickers. When I went by where it was located, I had a guide who's lived in Guadalajara his entire life. He called it the red light district. He said that at the time, that was like the red light district. I told him, as an aside, and we'll talk about this in a second, I told him that Manuel Bartlett Diaz was at a meeting there, and he laughed. Not not smirked, he laughed and said, and I think this is an exact quote, Manuel Bartlett Diaz wouldn't have been caught dead at a hotel like that. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, it's located on a busy street, right? It's a main thoroughfare, or it was. It had very little parking. It didn't have, like, underground hidden parking. Very little park. So if you had a number of luxury cars from the traffickers, right? says they traveled in several expensive luxury cars. And then you have the cars of the politicians, the prosecutors, the military. Again, lots of cars, probably not you know, inexpensive cars. These are things that are going to be noticed. Right? If you're going to have a meeting like this, even assuming there was such a meeting, are you going to put it in a place where you can't park your cars and everybody in the world can see it? Of course not. Then what do we know? We know that the rooms in the hotel were small. How do we know that? Well, we've got testimony or affidavits, statements from former managers. And we've got pictures of the rooms. 
And we've got the statements of the people who took the pictures of those rooms. So you got small rooms and, and there's no suite on the ground floor. None. There are suites on the upper floor, or on an upper floor, but none of them resemble the room that was discussed. You know, two bedrooms and a living room, and certainly none of them that went to an outside patio. So what do we know? We know that Godoy testifies and all he testifies to is his personal recollection, right? The government doesn't show pictures. The government doesn't show a layout, a floor plan. The government doesn't provide a corroborating witness of any kind. And contrast that unsupported testimony with pictures, descriptions, affidavits, sworn statements, general knowledge of the public in Guadalajara. Again, can somebody... Say, you know what? I'm going to believe Godoy and Lopez. Sure, go right ahead. But if I don't, don't tell me that it's because I'm not looking. Don't tell me it's because I don't want to look at the evidence. If I disagree, which I do, if I find the testimony of Godoy with respect to this meeting, and many other meetings, by the way. Completely fanciful. Completely unreliable. Completely devoid of common sense. It's because I've looked at the evidence. I've got the pictures of the hotel sitting on my desk in front of me. Now, what else can we say in trying to evaluate the testimony of Godoy and Lopez? And when I say testimony here, I mean both testimony at trial and their statements in DA6 reports. Well, one of the things that we can look at is we can look at an alleged meeting that occurred from about 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. at Lope de Vega, on February 7th, right? So that's the day Agent Camarena is picked up. And from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m., there's an alleged meeting. And one of the participants in this alleged meeting is, again, Manuel Bartlett Diaz. Now, one of the great things about being, you know, the, in the position that he was, is that he has a schedule, right? Lots of meetings. He has aides. He has calendars. And he has press that follows him all around. 
or at minimum notes when he's at different places. And so Manuel Bartlett Diaz has a calendar of the day of February 7, 1985. And I happen to be holding it in my hand. That calendar says that he has a meeting starting at 11 a.m. with Fernando Gutierrez Ortega, who is the Secretary of Finance for the state of Guanajuato. And I know I pronounced that wrong, so I apologize. And his day concludes with a 9 p.m. meeting with Jose Maria Morfin Patraca, who is the official in the Secretariat of Government responsible for elections. All of these occurred in Mexico City, which was not at any time now or then, but particularly then, wasn't something like you could just hop back and forth between Guadalajara and Mexico City. So, you say, gosh, how in the world could he have been at Lope de Vega from 7 to 11 p.m. on February 7 as Godoy and Lopez allege when he has this calendar? Well, if you're suspicious, you might say, huh, maybe this calendar's just made up. We have no way of knowing if it was the actual calendar. (laughs) But we do. And again, these are where facts are so important, right? So, there are, I have copies of, And I'll talk about those copies uh, in a minute. Letters, sworn declarations, other statements regarding those meetings during the day. Okay. So let's, let's look at some of these. From 7 to 11 p.m. That's, again, when he's supposed to be in Guadalajara. Jose Maria Morfin Petraca who was the official, again, in the Secretary of Government responsible for elections, he says, hey, I remember this meeting really well because we were talking about electoral matters and we were preparing for a meeting that we were going to have with President de la Madrid the following day. Hey, okay. What's really important is the press talking about the following day. So February 8th. Notes in at least two different press reports the meeting between De La Madrid and Manuel Bartlett Diaz that Jose Maria Morfin Petraca says they were preparing for. Nice corroboration, right? Again, we're not talking just a witness statement. We're saying, hey, here's a calendar. Here's somebody who's willing to say, I was there. Here's what we're preparing for. And by the way, here's a contemporaneous press report that says that that meeting that we were preparing for did exist. But there's more. At 11 a.m., again, he meets the first meeting of the day with Fernando Gutierrez Ortega. 
Secretary of Finance for one of the states. February 8th, there's a newspaper article. A newspaper article. The next day that talks about that meeting. Now again, can you say, oh, this all could be made? Sure it could. But it's a whole lot more persuasive than Jorge Godoy going into one of his trances and coming up with statements, right? And there's more. Alfonso Martinez Dominguez, who was the governor of the state of Nuevo Leon, met with Manuel Bartlett Diaz from noon till 1 p.m. And he admits, or he says, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Here's a letter that says, yes, I did. And you got a Manuel Bartlett Diaz aide who says, hey, I remember taking him, you know, greeting him, taking him into the meeting with Manuel Bartlett Diaz. And it stands out to me because I'm from Nuevo León. So that was the governor of my home state. There's also a meeting. From 5.30 to 6 with Alberto Isaac Amada. Okay, let me try that one more time. Alberto Isaac Ahumada, or something similar to that, sorry, who was an official from the Department of Radio, Television, and Cinema. And he confirms, yep, I had that meeting in Mexico City at 5.30 on February 7th, 1985. So I ask you, how, how could Manuel Bartlett Diaz have been at Lope de Vega from 7 to 11 p.m.? Because in order to believe that, you have to believe the unsupported, uncorroborated. And again, the government had a chance to corroborate it. They didn't. Nothing. The uncorroborated statements of Godoy and Lopez from 7 that say he was there from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. As an aside, where the hell did he sleep? If he was there from 7 to 11, number one, we we don't think, you know, he was getting a height of bed at Lope de Vega. And it's not like Manuel Bartlett Diaz could just randomly roam around Guadalajara and not be noticed by anybody. It doesn't make any sense. But there's more. Lopez's DEA 6 report, you know, the first one, 14 pages or so, where he talks about everything, he says, hey, there was another meeting that was either on February 5 or February 6, where Manuel Barla Diaz was there. Now, on testimony at trial, excuse me, I think it's fair to say he hedges a little bit on that, but let's go back to his... his, um, DEA 6 report. February 5 or February 6? Well, February 5, President de la Madrid was in 
Querétaro. Hopefully, I'm going to get that right. For public, public ceremonies commemorating the 68th anniversary of the National Constitution. And he was accompanied at those public ceremonies by Manuel Bartlett Diaz. And those ceremonies and the attendance of President de la Madrid and Manuel Bartlett Diaz were reported in the press on February 6th. So he wasn't in Guadalajara on February 5th. February 6th, there's a whole bunch of public meetings. There's an economic cabinet meeting with various officials, including future president of Mexico, Carlos Salinas Gortiari, and Carlos Salinas and Manuel Bartlett Diaz have a private meeting that's reported in the press the next day. At 6 p.m. on February 6th, Manuel Bartlett Diaz has a meeting with Aldolfo Lugo Verduzco, who at the time was the president of PRI, who says, yep, I had that meeting at 6 p.m. on February 6th in Mexico City with Manuel Bartlett Diaz. In addition, there was a public lunch in Mexico City on February 6th to honor the Secretary of Commerce and Industrial Development that was reported in the press the following day. Put aside, if you will, the logistics, all right, that Manuel Bartlett Diaz is going to, whether it's February 5 or February 6, somehow he's going to leave his official duties in Mexico City, go to Guadalajara, go to a meeting to discuss, you know, the, the abduction of the DEA agent, fly back to Mexico City, and then either two days later or the following day, go back to Guadalajara, go to Lope de Vega without anybody knowing, you know, without being seen anywhere, be there from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. and then some back, somehow go back to Mexico City. Isn't that absurd just listening to it? Sounds mind-boggling, <laughs> you know, to, to, to say it. It doesn't make any sense. So again, what can we say? We can say, hey, I believe Godoy and Lopez. We don't care that there wasn't corroboration. We don't care that the government could have put on other testimony. And and just one thing about think back to the testimony that there was a um, blonde-haired consulate employee who had picked out Camarena for the abduction. Remember that? At the time, I thought it was weird. And now I think it's even more unbelievable 
that the government offered no testimony as to who that could have been. Think about it. How hard would it have been to say, hey, here's a roster of everybody who worked at the consulate. Here's one blonde employee, and we're going to show the picture. Or even say there was a blonde employee. Nothing, nothing corroborating it like that. Same thing with Las Americas Hotel. Why not get some corroboration? Why not show something? So again, you can say, fine, I want to believe them. That's great. But you know what? I'm going to rely on the documents. I'm going to rely on the statements of people who were there. I'm going to rely on pictures. I'm going to rely on press reports. And more importantly, I'm not just going to rely on them. I'm going to put them on my website so everybody can look at them. You can draw your own conclusions. But for me, when you look at verifiable, concrete facts, as few as they are in this case, They don't support Godoy and Lopez. They simply don't. And to me, these simple things that show complete inaccuracy in their statements make everything else they've said suspect. And again, I point out, Almost everything said by Godoy and Lopez is based on their testimony alone. So yeah, I'm going to rely on the pictures. And damn it, don't anybody come at me and say, you have a closed mind. You didn't look, you didn't research. And if you want to fight on research, if you want to go back and forth on facts, Tell me when and where. Okay. Next week, I don't know. (laughs) Things keep changing quickly. Um, But hopefully we're going to come back with some some interesting ideas. Um, Again, looking forward, we're going to start blending a little bit of the Camarena case and, and the specifics of the last narc and the things we've been talking about with some future events and also tie it a little bit into what's going on in Mexico. But um, I want to keep kind of a, a little bit of a balance so that um, we're not beating the same drum over and over, but we're also not ignoring, you know, things that are developing new facts, new investigations, got lots of balls in the air of, um, investigations, documents, etc. I think I found a way to get access to some of the documents that were part of that um, hacker's dump. And um, we'll start going through those and and let people know what's important. Uh, Again, on the website, give me a couple days uh, because I need to get my web developer to remind me how to do it. Um, But I'm going to get the Manuel Bartlett Diaz documents and the Las Americas documents that I talked about today, I'm going to get those on um, the web in one form or another. 
Um, so look for those if you care. And otherwise, have a good, safe week. Thanksgiving's coming up, which is one of my favorite holidays. So uh, looking forward to that. But have a good week, and we will talk to you next week.